Hello, Habit Podcast listeners. Jonathan Rogers here. I just wanted to let you know about a new online class that starts October 13th. In Writing with Feechies, I'll walk writers through my novel, The Bark of the Bog Owl, with the goal of sharing some of the practical things I learned from writing my first book. It promises to be the swampiest writing course you've ever taken. Find out more at thehabit.co slash bogowl. That's thehabit.co slash B-O-G-O-W-L. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Barnabas Piper is the author of several books, including the newly released Hoping for Happiness. As Russell Moore says, in this book, Barnabas leads us to what it might mean to be a people surprised by joy and surprised to be happy at last. Barnabas is on the church staff at Emanuel Nashville. He's also the father of two daughters and the co-host of the Happy Rant podcast. He blogs at BarnabasPiper.com. Here's hoping this conversation with Barnabas Piper brings you as much happiness as it brought me. Barnabas Piper, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, I know. So this book, Hoping for Happiness, um, is th- this podcast is going to re- release a few days before uh, your your book. Um, and we talked about doing this months ago um, at a at an in person gathering. Believe it or not. And if that makes people nervous, it was it was before we were told that that was not wise. That's right. Before the pandemic ended, all the fun. That's right. Um, but, but now we're finally doing this. Thank you, Zoom. Um, okay, hoping for happiness. You, um, as I read through your manuscript, um, I, I know you're talking about issues that are much larger than writing and creativity, um, but but I kept. I mean, you know, it is my tendency to apply these whatever I'm reading to you know to wonder what this has to do with the creative process, and I, I see a lot of important things in there. And I, I'm sure. I mean, you've written this is your fourth book, right? That's right. And so you've had plenty of reasons to uh, plenty of occasion to think through some of the issues uh, around uh, happiness and writing. Um, and as you mentioned in your, in your introduction of all the sort of weak hooks on which we hang our happiness, one of them is creative work and, and the hope, I mean, our work in general, but, but it seems that, that even more than say an electrician, um, people, yeah, I think it seems like electricians have, um, have somewhat, uh, realistic expectations about how happy their work is going to make them compared to what, you know, writers and songwriters and, and people who, who make a living in creative fields mm-hmm. or are not even whether they make a living or not. We, we expect, cre- you know, creative expression to somehow make us happy um, in ways that are, are sometimes unreasonable, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true, especially that distinction between, you know, creative work and in other kinds of work. There's a, there's a pretty clear um, I don't think most people go into into most professional fields with the clear expectation that this is going to be the most fulfilling thing in the world. This is a this plays an important part in my life. It provides for my family. I have some skills at it, etc. Creative work, we're putting ourselves into the world. I think part of the reason that we people who write, people who create, people you know, whether it's, it's music or visual arts or whatever it is, 
have that sense is because the work that we are putting in comes from us. Mm-hmm. When you're an electrician, you're fixing other people's stuff. You are wiring something according to specs. You're, you know, it's very yeah. valuable. And we wouldn't be having this conversation if somebody hadn't done a good job doing it. That's so, right. but when you write a book, when you write a poem, when you write a song, when you paint a picture, that is from your mind, your heart, your emotions, your best effort at putting truth into the world, beauty into the world, whatever it is. And so we hang a lot more of ourselves on those, on those works mm-hmm. in terms of fulfillment only to find that it, it does not deliver uh, in, this, <laughs> yes. in the way that we anticipated. When, when I, released, I remember when I released my first book in 2014, I had this, I wouldn't say it was explicit. It was just sort of this interior sense of how my life would improve upon the release of this book. Um, I wouldn't have said I wanted to get famous. I wouldn't have said I wanted to get rich. I wouldn't have said, which is good because neither of those things happened. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have said that I, I could have tangibly said how my life would be better, but I expected on release day for the sun to come out from behind the clouds in a way that it never had before. And it didn't happen. I woke up the next day and I was still me and my life was still my life and my job was still my job and nothing had changed except that this work was in the world. And that, that kicked off for me, you know, what is now a six or seven year process of figuring out what is reasonable to expect from creative work. What is, it, what, is it that, what is it that I should be hoping for, should be banking on, should be expecting, and what is it that's not helpful? Uh, and again, trying to avoid, avoid pessimism or sin. You don't want to write something and be like, well, this sucks and nobody's going to like it because why are you doing it? Yeah. Neither do you want to say this is going to change the world because I yeah. think that you're now just setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's your business to do the work. It's God's business what happens right after that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think release day is the loneliest day in the world, you know, because you know, you're the same, you're the, you're as obscure. You're, I mean, like I'm speaking for myself, you know, I'm obscure all the time. It's just that on release day, you're more aware of your obscurity. Yeah. You feel like you shouldn't be and you still are. <laughs> yeah, know? right. And, and, and the thing is, even if you, so you, you set up the perfect release for an album, for a book, and you get everybody you know who's famous and less famous to tweet about it, Instagram post this thing, share with all their friends, it still doesn't feel like enough. Mm-hmm. Because inevitably, two months later, somebody goes, I didn't know you wrote books. <laughs> yeah. I get that all. I mean, this is my fourth book. And I, I, people at my church don't know that I'm an author. Mm-hmm. And I've come to almost appreciate that because they are so innocently honest. They don't realize that there's an element in saying that that's very hurtful because they're not trying yeah. to hurt me. They're just, oh, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and it's a really helpful kind of metric for me to measure my stupid ego against or my yeah. stupid expectations. Like, did I really expect this person who's been at the church for six months and is trying to figure out how to become a member to know that I've written for, that's why, why would I expect that? How important do I think I am? Yeah. And what am I actually expecting of this work that I do? Yeah. Yeah. And at least they're not pretending to have read your work when they hadn't. Yeah. I really like people who are like, oh no, I haven't read that. <laughs> I don't, I've never heard of it. I mean, it's, you wish they had, but it's much better than the, than the, the foe, the foe anything. Yeah. Right. Does the, so, so, you know, 
those issues beyond writing, like some of the, some of what we've been talking about is sort of publishing, right? The, the work itself, um, how does that work? Well, here, here's a question. Do you, do you write better when you're happy? I mean, are, are you, are you more inclined to actually do the work when you're happy? No, no, I'm not. Um, I, I'm inclined to, I'm inclined to have best intentions when I'm happy, <laughs> but I write, I think I write the best quality when I'm, when I'm not happy. And I think I write with the most heart when I'm not happy. Um, there's just, there's a certain amount of like, when you feel like you, you can see what you are trying to achieve, but you're not there. Mm-hmm. That's sort of, that sort of motivating factor. So in a book about happiness, I did not write this from the perspective of somebody who is happier than everybody else in the world. Hmm. I wrote this from the perspective of somebody who was on the exact same road of like seesawing between, I found a lot of pleasure in this. I was really disappointed by this. I found a lot of pleasure <laughs> in this. I'm really disappointed by this, just like everybody else. And so writing from a place of displeasure about happiness is, it was more effective for me and, mm-hmm. you know, so the times in life when everything is blissful, it's really hard to be motivated to create anything. Yeah. You just want to go outside and lay in the grass. Yeah. It's, I want to, I want to enjoy all of the things that are blissful and not yeah. pause and do this work because creativity is always a work. Even when it's going well, it's work. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, something that, that I appreciate from, uh, that Andy Osinga says is it's pretty important that you sit down the same time of day and preferably not at night to write because if you just if you only write when you feel like writing you're going to end up writing when you're sad <laughs> all the yes. time yes. you're going to be sad and and your work will you know will be sadder than you are yeah it'll just be a series of jason isbell songs that's right <laughs> just yeah. just a whole series of beautifully <laughs> written sad songs yeah right um i do love those sad songs huh? oh man they're so good yeah I mean, I, I hear Jason Isbell or, you know, George Jones. I'm like, I wish I had more to be sad about because this would really be a good, <laughs> this would really do me a lot of good. Um, uh, okay. So this is a, your, the title of your book is hoping for happiness, not hoping for joy. Um, mm-hmm. Are you not familiar Barnabas with this idea that Christians are supposed to be jo- uh, joyful and not happy? I, yeah, I'm quite familiar with it. And <laughs> thanks for putting that one on a tee. Um, that, that distinction was part of the, it was part of what made me unhappy enough to write this book. Let's put it that way. Hmm. I was, over time, I had gotten, I'd gotten really tired of the, the presentation of, uh, of happiness as something that was to, we were to be suspicious of it at best. <laughs> it is, it's trite, it's temporal, happiness is found in, in things that don't last. I mean, I had somebody say to me on Twitter recently, like happiness refers to things like it's connected to happenings and those things go away. I'm like, that's just a cute rhyme. It doesn't, <laughs> there's, there's no actual meaning there. Um, and, and joy is this, is this grounded substantive thing that Christians are to have all the time in all circumstances, but that doesn't mesh with either rea- it doesn't mesh with the Bible, it doesn't mesh with reality, and it, it just it, it's a distinction that was probably set up for helpful reasons at some point that has become something that's actually diminished people's 
freedom to enjoy God's world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because the, the question that I pose in the book, and I think it's one that everybody needs to consider, if somebody is devoted to joy, they write about joy, they speak about joy, joy is their, you know, their, their passion in life, and they're not happy, what is that? Who can take <laughs> them seriously? What does that even mean? Yeah. I, it, so, joy without happiness is nonsense. It mm-hmm. just doesn't make any sense. There's a version of happiness that is not joy in the Lord, for sure. Because mm-hmm. the world over is full of people who are not finding their joy in Christ, but who find a lot of happiness moment by moment in friends, in drink, in cookouts, in sex, in whatever. And like those are real. That's real. They feel really happy, and then they don't. Um, right. So, but but to, to, to separate the two as they are fundamentally different is just really unhelpful for the Christian because, you know, the Bible tells us to, to rejoice in all circumstances. Rejoicing is an expression of positive emotion. <laughs> it's <laughs> praise in a yeah. sense. That's, that's tied to gladness. That's tied to happiness. That's not a, that's not a like dour, I have joy in the Lord in this miserable service. Like that doesn't even, that, that doesn't, you don't see that tone anywhere. Not to mention the way that scripture just sets up over and over again, the things of earth as things that we're supposed to enjoy. Mm-hmm. In Genesis 1, God created it and it was good. Okay, well, the goodness didn't go away in Genesis 3. It just got messed up. And so the, you know, the, the things that God gave us, the, the friendships, the relationships, the food, the drink, the beauty of nature, the beauty of creativity and art are all things we're supposed to find pleasure in. And if you can somehow say that's joy and not happiness, I, you're doing some linguistic gymnastics that I don't understand. So I, I, I absolutely think that Christians are supposed to pursue happiness in gratitude to God for all the things that we find happiness in. And you seem to be suggesting that that joy equips us for happiness. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I think the happiness that a Christian is called to has to be woven together with this this joy in the Lord, in such a way that the two can't be separated. A happy mm-hmm. Christian is a joyful Christian. A joyful Christian is a happy Christian, and there's no there's no separating those two. You remove Christ from the equation. And I don't think there's genuine joy. And I think the happiness that's there is the one that, you know, there's probably, we should probably have a level of suspicion toward. Mm -hmm. So, but, but if Christ is involved, then happiness and joy are so intertwined, they can't be, you you can't unwind those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is, 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 how does happiness relate to say optimism? Yeah, I think, I think happiness and optimism uh, or, or hope and optimism are kind of two that there needs to be a distinction there because optimism. Well, you're talking about very, you're talking hope and optimism, happiness and optimism. I would say hope and happiness are, they're playing on the same team here. There's a, okay. there's a, there's okay. a correlation there. All right. Um, because so let me give the distinction between hope and optimism, and then I think we can connect that to happiness if I can remember what I'm trying to get at. Um, I think optimism is often positivity for the sake of positivity. Okay. It is the mentality that 2021 is going to be so much better than 2020. 
the calendar is going to roll over. We're going to, there's going to be fireworks. We're probably not going to have parties because we still won't be allowed to, but somebody's going to shoot off fireworks in my neighborhood at midnight. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then things are going to be better. Why? Because, because one minute passed. So optimism doesn't, doesn't ground itself in reality. It just looks ahead and goes, man, things are going to get better. The world is like the stock market. It just always trends upward. And it's just, it's a recipe for disappointment or a recipe for more disengagement from reality. Like you either have to kind of roll your optimism forward and never ground yourself, or at some point you crash and burn. I think hopefulness is looking ahead and go, going, 2021 could be a lot better. There, there are reasons to believe it could improve. And, you know, societally or politically or, you know, Jesus could come back or what, like, there are reasons to believe this could improve. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I have enough reason to have hope that I will get out of bed tomorrow and I will go about the business that God has given me to do. And I'm going to throw myself into it. I'm going to write, I'm going to work, I'm going to be a husband, I'm going to be a father, I'm going to do these things because hope pulls me forward. That, I think, is connected to happiness because if you have that hopefulness, that set of what I think are realistic expectations, it could be terrible, but also there's reason for hope. You can find happiness in life. You know, it's, you, can, you, can, you can take joy and happiness. I think those words are almost interchangeable in the circumstances that God has given you. And um, so optimism can lead to a version of happiness, but it can lead to a version of happiness that is gone in a moment if things don't go mm-hmm. well. Your optimism crashes and burns and then your happiness does too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Hopefulness can pivot with reality. Optimism can't. Huh. It just yeah. has to ignore reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to steer this back to the subject of, of writing and creativity, you know, Flannery O'Connor said, um, people who do, people without hope don't write novels hmm. and they also don't read them. And I, I mean, I, she, she was specifically talking about novels. I think we can just say books and, you know, or, or let's just say write stuff. I mean, even writing an, even writing an article, you know, re, or a blog post requires something. I mean, some sort of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you're in despair, why why write even a blog post? Yeah, it's amazing how you saw that play out during those first few months of um, when we were all locked in our uh-huh. homes. We were quarantined. Yeah. People had more time for the most part than they had previously. More kind of flexibility to do creative work, and without fail. I saw people who are who do creative work, musicians, authors, artists, talking about how hard it was to to buckle down and do the work. And I felt it. You know, I had some writing deadlines in there and I was like, I I can't do this. I don't know how to do this right now. And I hadn't tied it to that, but I think it's because when you look and go, tomorrow is going to be exactly like today, and the day after that is going to be exactly like that day, and everything is just gray and flat, kind of life and emotion wise, you lose hopefulness because yeah. you don't, I did not have reason in those days to think tomorrow is going to be an improvement on today. Now it wasn't depression, but it was just sort of like a grayness. 
So that makes sense because the other thing that people were saying is, you know, you kind of think, oh man, we're going to have so much time. I'm going to catch up on my reading list. Nope. Yeah. Didn't do that either. Mm-hmm. So, so I think Flannery O'Connor was very much in touch with the human emotion and drive that, that ties us to a future thinking self. Yeah. Because if you're writing, you're writing to, to make some difference in the future, to change somebody's mind, to give somebody something beautiful, to inform somebody of something so that their life is, is more full, whatever it is. And if you're reading, you're reading for the same purposes. If you're reading a story, you're, you're, you're wanting to draw on this, this presentation of a better reality or a reality that could be or something that sparks imagination. And none of that matters if tomorrow is a flat and gray and exactly like today, which is, yeah. So I think, I think that sense of hopefulness and creative work or creative um, participation makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in, an earlier, in an earlier conversation, uh, you and I were talking about the idea, when I say an earlier conversation, when we were talking and I had failed to press the record button, um, we were talking about the idea of you know the way that that writers um, can sort of in a much sort of a more localized sense than um, I mean in a smaller sense than really what your book is about but but this is a podcast about writing so we're going to put it in mm-hmm. those terms you can we easily lose hope you know a bad day of writing which I have so many bad days of writing it feels like I can't. Yeah, I'm never going to write a good sentence again. I, for some reason, we you know, we go straight to to that kind of um, despair. Well, I mean, that's not literally despair, but but just a a tendency to to we get in our head that because this was a bad day, um, I'm never going to do anything interesting again. And and by the way, writing a successfully writing a book is only a little bit of help because you think, well, that's all <laughs> that was that was all I had to say. And now I'm never going to write anything again. Yeah. The well is dry. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm sure you have uh, dealt with, with this kind of thing before. Yeah. It's, um, I would say, especially early on. So I, when I started writing with consistency and, and realized this was a thing that I want to invest myself in. So I've never made a living as a writer, but I've written and put stuff into the world consistently for, the 10-ish years, I don't know, give, give or take. I'd say those first couple couple to four years or so, I really struggled with that. Uh, especially once I was given an opportunity to write on deadline, you know, so mm-hmm. I, you got to turn in a piece every Wednesday by 10 p.m., you know, for, yeah. for a website. And there were a lot of Wednesdays at 7 p.m. I was like, I don't have it. Mm-hmm. But by about year six or seven, I could look back and go, I have delivered every Wednesday. Some of them were absolute trash pieces, mm-hmm. but they were on time and I got them <laughs> in. And, uh, and, and yeah, I think you use the analogy of creativity. Creativity is not a well or a reservoir. Creativity is a stream or a river. And so it, like, it flows. It doesn't just, you don't just use it up and then go, well, guess I'm done with that. Yeah. And so it, being able to look back and say, the feeling that I have right now is the same feeling that I had two weeks ago on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but I found it. I did the yeah. work and, and it just, 
and, and you, you kind of, you can build on past experiences to work through that in terms of the, the reason for hope in your work or the reason for, for pressing on the purpose of it. I also have found that there's a richness in identifying with your work because you write better when you're writing yourself, you kind of writing deeply from yourself, mm-hmm. but there's also being able to balance that with taking a step back and going, the work is not me. Yeah. Man, that's so, so important. It, the, the work does not define me, nor does it, you know, nor does it, like if somebody criticizes the work, I don't lose value as a human, yeah. um, which is tough for creative people because you pour yourself into this stuff. Yeah. And, and so being able to do that also allows for fending off despair because when you're struggling, you are not struggling as a human. Your, your, your worth as a human is not being diminished by your lack of quality work. Mm-hmm. You're just having a bad day at the office, so yeah. to speak. You know, anybody who, anybody who hikes or runs or whatever, like some days you just feel like you're dragging sandbags because it's just that day. And creativity mm-hmm. is like that, but we don't think of it in those terms. We think I am a right. sandbag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that is, I think that is so important. And for some reason... Yeah, as you said, it's it's well, you you identified the reason, but but I don't know why we we find it so hard to say a bad day writing is just like a bad day running or or a bad day any other kind of bad day, and and, and it and it may just be a matter of I've got a cold or I didn't sleep well last night. Not yeah. now the jig is up. <laughs> when, and I think people whose life circumstances change, so people who write and then they have a child. Well, an mm-hmm. infant is the worst muse because they just suck all your energy away. Yeah. They're, you, you just have to be able to differentiate good writing from good parenting, uh, yeah. creative work from the, this other really valuable, beautiful, wonderful, important thing that you're giving your life to. And if you can't write well or at all for a while, you don't, nothing is diminished. Mm-hmm. You just, you're just hitting pause because something else demands it. But I think... There's a, I think creative people identify so much with the work that anything, anything that, you know, throws a, throws a monkey wrench into that system is, it's, it feels like the end of the end of their selves. It's not just, it's not just the end of, well, all right, well, I guess I go do something else. It's like, no, I I don't know what I am anymore. I don't know who I am because I can't write or create in, in this manner. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't imagine, you know, I've, I've expected my happiness to come from being able to do this. Yeah. And I can't imagine being happy with that. Although I have to say, I mean, not, not writing is something that I, you know, I, I have a lot of experience with and have learned, (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, not writing is kind of my hobby, you know? Yeah. I mean, most creative people spend more time not creating than they do creating. So learning how to find happiness there is, uh, is real valuable too. Yeah, right. Um, you describe yourself as a recovering cynic. What do you mean by that? Um, my default for most of my life that I, well, at least the, the part of life that I would call the, the mature years, so post-college, has been to, to respond to things in a, to kind of look, look for the, look for the negative, not in a pessimistic, this is going to be as bad as possible, but just kind of always on the hunt for, yeah, but, 
What about? Mm-hmm. And an element of that is also holding back. You know, if you give 90% and things don't go well, you can, al- you can always blame the 10% you didn't give. Yeah. Um, if you give 100% to something and it doesn't go well, then it's on yeah. you. Or that's what it feels like. That's, right. And, and so even in create, and, and, but, that's a, but that is a cynical view of life because it's, it is a, it's essentially hedging bets to protect what do, against what doesn't feel good instead of living fully uh, with expectations of, man, this could go really well. Yeah. And so that, me- that kind of cynicism puts a ceiling on how much enjoyment you can have. Because if you only give 90%, you can't get 100% satisfaction either. Yeah. That's true in a relationship. It's true in creative work. Um, you know, there, I've, written, I've written pieces that I wish I had written differently. I wish I had been more forthcoming, more honest. Like I wrote them truthfully, but just opaquely. Yeah. And transparency would have given an opportunity for more satisfaction in how that landed, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by a recovering cynic is moving to the place of realistically looking at this and going, it could go really badly, but it's worth it to throw myself into this, this relationship, this book, this mm-hmm. article, this, this work, whatever it is, parenting, and, and not sort of cynically say, I'm going to I'm going to hedge against what could possibly go wrong. The sort of, yeah, yeah but it's more likely to not go well. That yeah. You're from Minnesota, right? I am. So, I mean, isn't that a, the, the land of kind of lowering your expectations? I mean, at least from, from Prairie Home Companion, that's the impression. Yeah. I get. yeah high praise in Minnesota is, could be worse. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, and then all of our sports teams, have trained us to have low expectations. When you get high expectations, you just get disappointed. The Minnesota Vikings have taught me that every uh, year of my life. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I went to Vanderbilt. So, <laughs> so um, you didn't have any expectations. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That's true. At, at least, yeah. Uh, no, you you talk about in your book the idea of uh, you know ping ponging between expecting too much and expecting too little. And yeah. somehow trying to trying to find a middle. You know, we we uh, we expect too much, which is a recipe for disappointment. And then we learn to expect way too little, which is a recipe for cynicism. Or it's certainly mm-hmm. not a recipe for happiness. No, definitely. It's not. a recipe for less disappointment, perhaps. Yeah. Um, again, as as you were saying about optimism, you know, you're happy until you're not. And seems to me with with uh, low expectations, you yeah. same way you're you're uh, you're not disappointed until you suddenly are very disappointed. Yeah, I think cynicism. Yeah, cynicism is measuring or or reining in expectations for the sake of avoiding pain, for the sake of avoiding disappointment. But it also the further you rein those in, the further you rein in the opportunity for enjoyment. So if so I just, uh, I just got married about a month ago at this point. And if I walked into this marriage with the expectation of it's probably going to be difficult, um, the hard days are coming, um, and so I should probably just sort of just bear down, be patient, wait it out. I will not be disappointed when those days come. Mm-hmm. I knew they were coming. Right? I expected them. 
but also I have, comp- I have reined in the opportunity for all of the enjoyment of a person who I just said, I'd like to spend the rest of my life with them. Yeah. All of the enjoyment of discovery, all of the, the pleasures of, of marriage, that, of, of a deepening relationship of all of these things. And so that's where there's a, you know, optimism would be foolish to say, it's going to be blissful for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Nonsense. That's just not the case. But cynicism takes away my opportunity for reveling in the things that are worth reveling in. And so there has to be kind of the whole premise of of the book is to expect the right things of the right things. And so from marriage, there should be an expectation of tremendous joy. And there should be an expectation of we're going to hurt each other in some way. We're going to disappoint one another and I say one another because that's a that's absolutely a two way street. I will I will be very disappointing, um, and and so if you can hold those intention, you can find genuine happiness, and not be completely broadsided when stuff is not as good as as it could be. Yeah. Okay. So, what are the right things to expect from writing and creative work? Oh man, yeah, that's a. That is a big question. I think I think that has to be measured by the purpose of the work. Uh-huh. So I write mostly nonfiction books from a Christian perspective. You know, if you're a novelist, your your aim might be a little different than what mine is. Cause I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to affect people's perspective on something. Okay. Um so that's my purpose. Now if my expectation is that releasing this book is going to change my life monetarily or change my reputation as a, you know, amongst literary critics or raise my, my profile as a, a nationally recognized speaker or whatever, that's probably, those are, those are probably bogus expectations. If my expectation is when this book gets in the hand of an unhappy person, it will bring some level of light to their life. I think I've landed at the right spot. So that's the purpose of my work. My work is not done. I can't, I can't have the purpose of personal gain. That's a side effect, maybe. Yeah. But if the purpose is being of benefit to those with the specific need, I can feel profoundly satisfied when I hear from those people that say, your book was really encouraging. It helped me find, you know, kind of level my expectations or find groundedness or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and that's, so for, for me, that, that is, that's the most important part of expectation in creative work is why am I writing this? And then what, you know, am I measuring myself by that purpose as opposed to anything else? Yeah. What about somebody who uh, doesn't have a book deal and uh, doesn't maybe has a blog, but doesn't have very many people reading it? Yeah, I think, well, that that's most writers uh, yeah. total. And it's also most writers at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a great place to start. Um, and for some people, that's like that, that is, that is where they are. So again, what I think, if you're going to do anything creatively and continue with it, you need to know why. Like when you sit down to write a blog post for your 112 readers, 
Why? Why are you doing it? There are a lot of good reasons to do it. That's not a cynical question saying, why are you even doing this? As much as what is it that drives you to put the kids to bed, get that 17th cup of coffee of the day and and get to work? Um, And are you fulfilling that purpose? So is is it encouragement? Is it storytelling? Is it community building? Creative work is a great way to draw people together. You know, if you have 112 consistent readers who enjoy discussion around your work, you've created something of great value. Um, Your work has a purpose of value. If you're saying something true with beauty, that's a hard thing to do. It's not that hard to say true things. It's hard to say true things beautifully. Mm -hmm. If you're striving for that, you have a purpose that's worth pursuing and just continuing to, to plug away at this thing. Yeah, man, I, th- I think it's so important that our um, that we uncouple our expectations from those things that we have no control over. Yeah, you know? I mean, you talked about you know the the Wednesday night deadlines. My mine's t- Monday night because I put out a Tuesday, you know, letter on Tuesday, and um, and I'm, I've just loved having that small thing that I am accountable for. <laughs> yeah, and um, and it is under my control whether I get that out every Tuesday morning and Mm -hmm. what happens then is not in my control. And, um, if I have any expectations beyond those things, I'm just asking for trouble. Yeah. And I, and I think there's, if you have no expectations outside of that, you can still take great joy in those things, but they're like wonderful surprises, you know? If, if your goal is to do the, the pieces that is in your control, I want to put out the best piece of truthful writing as beautifully as I can, full stop. Yep. Then you find out that somebody shared it and then somebody else shared it and then somebody else shared it and it went, you know, sort of pseudo viral. That's a wonderful surprise, but it mm-hmm. shouldn't alter your expectations for the next thing you write. The next yeah. thing you write should be, I want to put out the most truthful thing I can as beautifully written as I can, full stop. Yeah. Because most of them don't go viral and, and that That's we don't true. need to be skewed by that. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, it's, we talk about setting expectations and we think of setting expectations in terms of, you know, high, low, medium. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it really has much more to do with just, you know, not high, not low, not medium, but just the right uh, expectations align with what you're actually doing, right? I mean, yes. so so it's not, hey, lower your expectations to how many people are going to read your blog post. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your expectations, the ones that are going to make you happy or not happy, need to be detached from yes. the number of readers. Yeah, I used the phrase earlier, expecting the right things of the right things, and that's yeah. because it. I don't. I don't like like exactly what you just said. I don't like the phrasing of expecting too much of the you know too mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's what are you expecting them from? Mm-hmm. What is the, what are you aiming your expectations at? Is it, because if, if you're hoping to get happiness from numbers, you can expect more, you can expect less, whatever. It's going to disappoint you. Because <laughs> the problem until, with numbers is that they're infinite. There's always yes. something higher. Yeah. Until, until every person in the population reads your stuff and loves it, you will be disappointed. And then you have to do it again the next day. Yeah. So it's... And by the way, if in the event that everybody read it and uh, loved it, then you've got the option of saying, 
they must not know me or they wouldn't love it. Right. I mean, so, so if you do succeed, you've then got, um, I mean, if you succeed numerically, um, you know, if, if you're JK Rowling, then mm-hmm. you've got imposter syndrome waiting around the corner for you. Yes. Oh yeah. That's a, it's a, it's a devious son of a gun. That one is. Um, <laughs> but I mean, even, I think, I think we can, so taking, taking this out of the creative realm for just a moment, I think we can, for example, we talk about having expectations for God. Mm-hmm. You can expect, it's, it's almost impossible to expect too much of God or too little of God. We're always expecting the right things or the wrong things of God. So it's an alignment with what he yeah. has said he will or won't do. Yeah. So it's not new because God is infinite. And so there's no way to expect too much of God, but you can expect God to do things that he didn't say he was going to do. That's a wrong expectation. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's not dissimilar from expecting the wrong thing of my creative work. Yes. So it's, am I expecting it to accomplish something that it is not for, or that right. it is like, that shouldn't be the purpose. There's an alignment with what should and should not be, which is where expectations need to be measured rather than quantitatively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I just had some, some, something you said gave me a, a moment of insight that, that I, I wow. Oh well, I guess it's gone forever. <laughs> it it would have it would have uh it would have solved everything. Well, Our happiness would have secured right the, permanently. Yeah, podcast would have moved right to the top of the rankings with that thought. But uh, <laughs> I guess we'll never know. I guess we'll never know. All right, I gotta wrap up. We're we're we gotta bring this thing in for a landing. So tell me who are the writers who make you want to write, Barnabas? So I write mostly nonfiction, but mm-hmm. most of the writers who make me want to write are fiction writers mm-hmm. or were when they were alive. Um, John Steinbeck okay. is one of my all-time favorites. Um, Pat Conroy. Wait, what, what, what about when you read John Steinbeck, what about that work makes you want to go sit down and write something? Steinbeck had the ability to write the stuff of real life with more clarity than just about anybody I've read mm-hmm. and did it with a, and kind of an economy of, of prose, you know, his descriptions were not long and flowery. They were substantial, but not, he didn't drag on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to get kind of the full scope of what is beautiful and what is dark. Mm-hmm. He didn't, you know, he didn't just sort of wallow in the darkness. Um, yeah. Like I think about from Travels with Charlie, he's got a chapter in there about spending Thanksgiving in Texas. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever read. Mm. Um, Texans will read it and think it's a compliment. Everybody else will read it and think it's an insult. <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of the genius of Steinbeck. Yeah. Um, I would love, yeah. So that being able to, being able to touch on the, like the undercurrent of reality with that much clarity. Conroy um, writes pain better than anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really does. And he does wallow in the darkness. He finds sort of a, a dark Irish Catholic hope in it. There's sort of a, a, a cynical sense of humor there, mm-hmm. but he's just, yeah, he, you can tell that he has read every great author who's ever lived or something close to it because mm-hmm. he just draws on the styles and the vocabulary and the, yeah, the, the, plot devices and everything. Um, on the nonfiction side, I would say um, 
Lewis and Chesterton because they're the two most persuasive writers in terms of in in a non traditional fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of Chesterton's a little bit more uh, in your face. Mm-hmm. You are a fool. Here, let me tell you why. Now you're persuaded, kind of thing, which I find great pleasure in. And he's also funny. I really like yeah. the the humor. Lewis had a way of um, walking people through a series of thoughts that you didn't know quite where it was going. And then you arrive at a conclusion and it's sort of like walking out of the woods and you're just like, whoa, look at this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and so the, the way that they pieced together thought mm-hmm. to bring people to a conclusion and never in a devious way, but just in a, in a roundabout way, it seemed until you go, oh, that all makes sense in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah, great. All right, man. Hey, Barnabas Piper, thanks for being here. This made me happy. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Let's talk again soon. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.